Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. For our topic today, Kevin talks to Steve Goldsby, the founder and CEO of ICS Incorporated, about how targeting and focused business development activities can help both government and industry. This episode is brought to you by Skyway Acquisition. Become a member of the Skyway community and make it easier to navigate the complicated world of government contracting as you gain context from Skyway's team of former contracting officers. Go to skywaymember.com to get started. Okay, here we go with Kevin's conversation with Steve Goldsby. Hey there, today on the podcast, I've got Steve Goldsby from Integrated Computer Solutions. And look, to kick us off, you know, tell me a bit about yourself. Well, I'm former Air Force, uh, started this business about 20 years ago. Our government customers use our support services to deliver services to the warfighter globally. So primarily we do data center operations, network operations, cyber defense, and software engineering. And you've been in business since when? I've been in business since 1997, just after I separated from the military. I worked for a large uh, federal contractor for about a year and a half, didn't like that very much. So about 20 years now, uh, we have about 135 employees, about 60 subcontractors today, and we did about $25 million in revenue last year, and we're growing 20 to 40% a year. And one of the things we talk about on the podcast is targeting. So how do you guys target? We focus heavily on Department of Defense because we're intimately familiar with the DOD missions, their IT systems, their infrastructure. We've uh, been doing it for a number of years, and we have a lot of retired military, so we understand that domain. We have a lot of veterans who are personally invested in the success of the military and their mission. So a lot of folks uh, have, have job options, but they want to continue to serve uh, indirectly through the military as a contractor. We're starting to diversify into civilian agencies uh, just so that we can manage the risk of our portfolio. But DOD work is kind of the low-hanging fruit for us. Yeah, we talked about having you on the podcast at some point, and we came up with the topic as a really good discussion for the two of us. And it's the whole idea of winning contracts is the strategy of how you actually win some of the work. And from the contracting officer's perspective, I mean, what I care about when I'm, when I'm managing contracts is that I just want to get the work done. I want to get the contracts awarded. I want to support the warfighter or the customer. I, I, I want to get the work done. And, and that's really the focus from the government side, from, from my perspective. So let's flip the coin from the contractor's perspective. You know, what, what are you most, what's keeping you awake at night? What are you most, most focused on? We're focused on winning work primarily, but we temper that with, we want to win good work with good clients where we can actually perform and deliver. I've learned over the years that if you take a chance on a customer and it's the wrong customer, the delivery problems you have for four to five years afterwards, just trying to make that customer happy are generally not worth it. It's bad for you. It's bad for them. Everybody gets a bad taste in their mouth. So we, we want to win and grow, but we don't want to do it in such a way that we have kind of this neutron bomb, this blast radius uh, that's associated with poor fit between us and the customer, right? And it may be their culture and ours don't match, or you have maybe a problematic program manager on one side or the other. So our focus is on winning good, sustainable business that we can use to to continue to manage this rapid growth slope. And targeting is a huge part of that. Is It's one thing to just win stuff, but you're talking about winning with the right customer. I mean, all, defining that right customer, defining what it looks like ahead of time. I mean, is it taking you a while to unpack that? 
It has, uh, because over the past 20 years, what I've noticed is contracting officers uh, are generally working harder and taking on a bigger workload with fewer resources. And so it's harder to get in front of contracting officers, program managers, and just have a conversation. So a lot of time, the comms that you have are limited to RFIs, draft RFPs, and formal questions and answers. And if you've been in this business very long, you know that it's it's difficult to write clear requirements. You know, <laughs> when you're doing something like supporting a complex military mission, to write a five-year requirements package is incredibly difficult. And those are things that could be cleared up if we could just have a conversation. But, you know, everybody's afraid of protests and, you know, malfeasance and so on. So a lot of times it becomes this, you do your best to reverse engineer this written requirement that, that was probably written by 50 different stakeholders. Uh, so that's why we feel it's very important to properly target your customers, right? Make sure you understand their mission, the work they have to get done, their mission support partners, and then make sure you have people on your team that, that can intelligently talk to fulfilling those requirements. Yeah, and, and from the government side, a big part of my concern is that if, if I talk to everybody, I'll never actually get the RFP released. And which goes why the government should be targeting too. I didn't do that as well when I was a CEO is if, if I know that there are only going to be five or 10 companies that because I've niched this requirement down, then that's a limited number of companies I talk to. If I have a very nebulous requirement, then yeah, and I'm raising my hand because <laughs> I had a couple of those industry days where I thought, wow, why are there 300 companies here? Yeah, because I didn't specify it up. Well, before we get into the, the meat of this, let me stop and say thanks. This week is to Kenetta Mears. Uh, she's a procurement analyst with the Veterans Administration. Uh, she's also been a contracting officer. She's in Sacramento, California. The reason I want to thank her is she's, you know, she took a half an hour out of her time to give me some great feedback on the podcast, on what we're doing, and, and we're doing well and some things we can tweak. But here's the part that's really awesome. So she cracked the code on how to use the podcast to get continuous learning points. She figured out that you can use a screenshot on your phone and to show that you've listened to the podcast. And what she does is she takes three episodes and they're roughly 20 minutes each. And she'll, she'll give her supervisor screenshots of the three episodes and say, look, that's one hour combined. Here's my hour of training. Probably close to a dozen listeners have asked that very question. And thank you to Kineta for you've already solved it. So thanks for helping us to help the government folks get their, actually industry and government, get their CLPs from this free podcast. Okay, back to how do we win work? And you came up with a list of three key things. And the first one is smart pipeline development. Second one is discipline, business development, and capture process. And then the third one is smart proposal development and using people to support you properly. So we're going to unpack each one of those. Well, the first one is the smart, and they're actually in a chronological order, which makes it pretty easy to, to think through them. The first one is the smart pipeline development. The easiest way to think of this is finding things, finding the opportunities, and then tracking them properly. So what's been the big difference for you in building a smart pipeline? There's really two primary things. The, the biggest one is about in the past six to nine months, we switched from searching for opportunities using NAICS codes, which is what everybody in the business seems to do, to using PSC codes, which are product and service codes. And I like to say it's like the difference between using a laser versus a sledgehammer to target deals. So NAICS codes, we found that we were getting a lot of noise with the signal. So 5415XX is the sector that we generally work in. We were finding that, you know, there's engineering work in there, you know, digging ditches, building walls, stuff that you would not, you're like, this doesn't fit. But because a portion of the requirement uh, had that work in it, 
or had 5415XX work in it. We were just seeing all of these opportunities and like that. We don't do anything even close to that. And to clarify, NICS Codes is North American Industrial Classification System. We actually have a podcast episode about that. So, okay, continue. I have forgotten that. I've been using the term NAICS for so long, I forgot what it stood for. Uh, so since we started using PSC codes, which are four-digit codes to describe products, services, research, R&D, whatever, things that the government buys, we have been able to really target like a laser beam opportunities and not just things that come out as RFIs or draft RFPs. But the second big thing is we've now that we've become much more mature, we are targeting deals that are coming up for recompete in one, two, or three years, getting further ahead of those by going through FPDS, the Federal Procurement Data System, and targeting award data by PSC codes. So now, instead of just looking for RFIs and draft RFPs, which may get you 30 to 90 days in front of a deal, we go look at the award data and say, I want to search for the same PSC codes but for deals that were awarded three to five years ago. And now I have a huge pipeline of opportunities that are going to be coming up for recompete in the next one to two years. So now I can get one to two years ahead of deals instead of 30 to 90 days, which allows me to better target, better apply my resources, and quite frankly, kill deals early that we don't really have a chance of winning. Great example of targeting, of being ruthless. And, and because the PSC gives you so much more granular insight than the NAICS codes, it makes a big difference. So what kind of tools do you use to, to find them? I mean, how hard is it to find PSC codes? Uh, they're everywhere. So everything really comes from government systems at, at the root, right? So FedBizOps uh, for market research data, FPDS, the Federal Procurement Data System for award data. And there's a 90-day lag for DOD awards for, for OPSEC reasons. Uh, and then commercial services like GovWin or GovTribe. There's, there's a ton of services out there. We, we use FPDS, which is absolutely free, and Excel and pivot tables and pivot charts, and we're just as dangerous with that as we are with, with other commercial services. And when you talk about targeting things a couple of years ahead of time, tell me more about that. Like, what, what kind of experiences have you had doing that? So, whereas when we were just using NAICS codes, we were getting large numbers of deals that we had to filter through and toss them out. And we were getting 30 to 90 days ahead of deals, depending on, you know, how far in advance the government was doing their market research. There's exceptions where you could get six months or more ahead of a deal. But since we've moved from NAICS codes to PSC codes and started targeting award data, in addition to RFIs and draft RFPs, we've grown our pipeline from about $250 million to $700 million in less than three months. And it's a higher quality pipeline. It is, it is almost perfectly matched with the type of work we do and the customers that we do it for. And it took a while to kind of refine those search filters. But once we've gotten everything tuned up, our daily deal flow that we see from these various systems is very clean. It's, it's very easy for us to make that first qualification decision to determine if we should go out and, and further qualify the deal. In addition, since we stopped looking just at market research data, RFIs and draft RFPs, and started looking at award data, I've now got a pipeline of deals that reaches two and a half years out. So I've, I've got deals teed up that won't even uh, start market research for two and a half years. So I can really get ahead of deals, get intimate with the customer. And if you're trying to break into a new agency uh, or a military service, for instance, you've really got to get in there and get to know that customer, unless you're just going to go buy the business by, by lowballing on price, right? And that's not healthy business. So 
being able to get further ahead of those deals and start building those relationships is going to make a huge difference in the probability of win in your portfolio. A couple of presentations I gave, even when I was a CO, I used to tell people, look in the spending data and see when this contract expires and then be ready for it next year. I assumed people were doing that, but based on what you're telling me, I mean, are are you a, a unicorn or is it that people just aren't doing it? When you're a small business, you can get distracted by, I've just got to survive. And so you chase anything that looks even remotely close to, to what you might do. But as you start adding all these things together, they become kind of multiplicative, right? So two plus two equals 17, not two plus two equals four. <laughs> so if you use PSC codes instead of NAICS codes to better target opportunities, you'll get less noise, you'll get less distractions. And so whereas we used to stretch and chase things that weren't a really good fit, because that's all, that's all that we could find we're drowning in deals that are perfect fits for us. And so now our problem is we have to figure out what are the, the absolutely the best cream of the crop deals, which is a great problem to have. And that nugget alone will save people hundreds of hours. And, and the big part of it is knowing what not to do. That's one of the things that, that, that you, we should probably footstop a little bit more is like you said a couple of times, it tells you what to walk away from quickly and opportunity. We've, we've said it on the podcast a lot, opportunity is not the problem. It's to filter. All right. The next piece is having discipline in your business development and capture process. And, and by that, you mean you've got to adopt the process and kind of religiously follow it. And I talk about, just mentioned that in the last one, you got to target, but you also got to do it ruthlessly and stick with it. It's not what it'll get you. It's what it'll cost you. And every deal that comes through the pipeline that you could do, eh, you, you really got to be able to say, okay, we can do it, but we really should be that kind of thing. And so what's, what's the process and what's the driver? For, for you having a disciplined process? We've always followed what we call modified Shipley. And Shipley is the big, giant BD capture lifecycle process everybody knows about. It's also very cumbersome. It can be difficult to tailor, right? So there's 96 steps to the thing. And it's just, you know, if, if you wanted to go after a weapon system like an F-35, Shipley is the way to do it. Uh, we've adopted Lofeld, which is what we, what we would call lean Shipley, and it's very easy to tailor down for small deals, and it's very robust for bigger deals. So we adopted the, the Lofeld model. We got our people Lofeld trained. The hard part is the discipline, especially when previously you were not very disciplined. But having the discipline to follow that process, use the artifacts, you know, build the capture book. And when you have that information and you do it religiously, it's very easy to start making smart business decisions like kill this deal, advance this deal you know, into pursuit. Our BD pipeline calls, they go much quicker. Uh, we have much more direct conversations about do we chase it or do we not chase it? And sometimes we will have a deal in pursuit for months. And then we find out something new, like, you know, a heavy hitting competitor just entered the field and the likelihood of us winning that deal just went down. But I've got five other deals where the probability of winning those went up. And so we walk away from the deal that we, we've spent some money chasing, but instead of good money chasing bad, we just walk away. And, and once you get to a point where you see that, that work, that, that disciplined process starts saving you time and money and headaches, it, it gets a lot easier to be religious about following it because your BD and capture folks aren't killing themselves every day. You're not throwing money down the, down the drain, chasing deals you can't win. How long did it take you to to refine this? Is this a recent development or? Yeah, we thought we were doing discipline BD and capture for about 17 or 18 years. And a couple of years ago, I started really immersing myself in this space because I saw how much money I was spending 
to win a dollar. So if you spend a dollar ten to win a dollar of revenue, you're, you're going to go out of business. And, and it wasn't that bad. But when you benchmark yourself against your competitors and you find that you're not very efficient or effective, it kind of inspires you to go out and learn what you don't know. And so we did that. We tinkered around a little bit and we finally just went head first and became very disciplined about following the model. And it's, it's paid off pretty dramatically. And one of the big takeaways is you have to constantly reevaluate positions and, and say, is, is this still a good deal? And it, it's hard to walk away from something you've been following for six months. Like you just gave an, gave an example of another competitor came in, the landscape changed. It's now tilted away from us. Accept that and get off the tilt whirl because you're not going to win. And yeah, that's, that's, that's the, the, the ruthless part. When you have BD and capture resources that are compensated on the amount of work they win, they don't want to follow the discipline process. They just want to brute force wins uh, so that they can, they can get paid their variable comp. So I built this model that kind of demonstrates, hey, the more you follow the, the model, the higher your probability a win gets, the less work you have to do to put more money in your pocket. And once we showed that, everybody started getting religion about following the process. And, and they've, that's what they've uncovered is, hey, you know, I can actually go home and see my wife and kids every evening and not work every weekend. And I'm actually more effective at my job and making more money. So the idea that you've put this into mathematical numbers that people can just grasp is huge. We talk about P-Win, but most government folks know what that term is, maybe. But you know, describe to me what, what P-Win is to you. So P-Win is probability of win, or you use the term percentage of win. I've heard, heard it said both ways. We, we say probability of win or P-Win. And what we do is we track the number of offers we make versus the number of offers we were awarded. And that's our probability of win. And we, we track that over a trailing 12-month period to kind of level out spikes and dips, right? And we want to see that number go up. And so when we kind of started benchmarking that, inf- that, that number, that P-Win, we found that it was erratic because we weren't following a disciplined process and it was much lower than a lot of our contemporaries. And so we implemented Lofeld, modified Lofeld, tailored it to our unique requirements. We baselined our P, our 12 month trailing P win and found it wasn't really a great number. And so our senior leadership from that point became ruthless about following the process and, and, and getting more and better deals makes it easy to do that. I'll say that you've got it. You've got to fix the pipeline issue first. You got to get more and better deals in the front. But when you can start cherry picking and you can start aligning yourself with deals that you you are more likely to win than your competition, even small increases in that number have a huge return. It costs me the same amount of money to write a proposal for a $10 million deal as it does for a $50 million deal. So if I can increase my probability of win from 10% to 20%, I can cut my spend by, let's say, 40%. And each 10% incremental improvement in P-Win has a dramatic impact on the amount of work you have to chase and the amount of work you have to do and the amount of money you blow on losing deals. And so we are, we are very focused on all the measurables associated with P-Win. We do hot washes when we get our outbreaks if we lose a deal. Why did we lose? What do we do next time not to lose? And we feed that back into the model so that we, again, start chasing deals that are better aligned with our capabilities, our understanding of the customer and the mission. So those small improvements in your probability of win, which is all related to the discipline of following your process, has huge payoffs. And, and having, like you said, the, the chronological piece of this is having a, a strong pipeline will we'll make this better. But the thing that jumps out at me is 
in addition to the fact that you're not you know, blowing a whole bunch of money on stuff you're not necessarily going to win, you're not burning out your BD folks. They're, they're more focused. And so let me put on the CEO hat. I'm only getting calls from like five or six people as opposed to, you know, 50 people. If more people did this, <laughs> it would make the system overall work more effectively. Right. Well, and I think, you know, it becomes this vicious cycle, right? If, if you start raising the bar in your acquisitions to cut out the chaff, then the people that are left are the ones that have done a better job of targeting and are actually going to probably deliver better work. It allows you to raise the bar to get fewer, I'll, I'll say bottom feeders, right? People that don't, that are chasing things they shouldn't be chasing. You've got to evaluate that proposal if you're going to toss them out. So if you, if you can change your package to raise the bar on the front end to get less of that, it's less work for you. Industry, we stop chasing deals that, that we can't win. We stop wasting your time. We stop wasting our money. You know, it, it's great for the ecosystem as a whole. All right, the last one. So after you've got a good pipeline and you've got a, a very ruthless strategy <laughs> to stay disciplined, now you got to write proposals. And so the third piece you had here was smart proposal development. So you know, talk me through what you mean by using outside resources effectively. So depending on the, the size of your business and where you are in the growth cycle, it, it's very expensive to bring on uh, seasoned business developers, capture professionals, proposal professionals, depending on how big you are. So buying that as by the drink, as I like to say, acquiring that by the drink, pay as you go is kind of the better way to do it. So you can get high end talent for the duration of the opportunity that you're chasing and the proposal that you're writing and turn it off when you're done. So it's, it's an efficient and effective way to get world-class talent to work on your particular requirement and not spend a lot of money while they're sitting idle. So something we didn't learn in, you know, for a number of years is um, we're not the smartest people in the world when it comes to understanding requirements and writing proposals. And so as we started to do more volume, we had to start outsourcing some extra work. And we found that the pros that we were using as 1099s, for instance, as subcontractors, were writing far better proposals, were, were providing far better support to us than we were able to do organically. So outsource early and often, I like to say, find world-class talent and let them do their job. Let them lead you through building a world-class proposal. Uh, that has a huge impact on your P-Win. Uh, so you'll pay more by the hour, maybe, but you'll spend less overall to generate a win, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. And and it's funny that it's, it's one of those things I did. I went through the same cycle. Uh, when we first started Skyway. We were hiring folks full time and, and it's it's a different model when you don't need them all the time. These folks from the requirement side to help you understand the customer requirement or use it just for proposals or where all do you use folks like that? Yeah, so we use them for everything. So as we've grown, we have organic resources now. We have full-time employees doing various things, proposal management, and we have subject matter expertise and so on. But we always have more work to chase than we have organic resources to help us chase it. So we have an, an opportunity where we actually just won the deal, where we have somebody in the organization that's a retired Air Force 06, a colonel, who was on the joint staff for six years. And so when it came time to develop a solution for the joint staff, we just happened to have a resource that, that didn't just know how the organization worked and, and what was really going on behind that written requirement, right? the stuff that didn't make it into the written word, but could say, here's what turns these people on. Here's what's going to resonate with them. You need to understand the mission that they have. Not, it's not just a technology problem, right? Everybody's going to come in with, hey, I got a technical solution. 
this person helped us understand what goes on in the minds of, of all the stakeholders in the organization. What are the big problems they face? And so we were able to put together an offer that sounded like we were already working in the organization. And, and in fact, the, the contracting officer representative in our debrief said he'd been in the organization for 30 years and ours was the best proposal he'd ever seen, which maybe embellished a little bit, right? New relationship. Uh, but he said it was almost like we, we knew everything going on in the organization. And, and you don't do that if you're not targeting because you don't take the time to find that, that right retired colonel to say, hey, walk us through what, they're, what they really specifically need from a mission perspective. This is the third piece. I think a lot of times folks will start with their proposal and skip those first two steps. <laughs> and, and the fact that you've done all three is what, what makes this really work. Well, and the other thing is, especially in our space, in, in the IT space, IT is commoditizing so quickly. Uh, so if you're just going to go in with a technical solution, you may as well not waste your time because that's, that's not what wins deals uh, in, in our space. You've got to go in with a strong technical solution, but you've got to have all the management components and the understanding of the mission if you really want to stand out. Because otherwise, if there's 20 proposals, you're going to get tossed early because you're bland and boring and you're offering the same thing everybody else is offering. Yeah, I heard somewhere, I think it was sales training that I took once that said uh, customers, prospects, they want to commoditize you. It, and, and as a CEO, I'm sure I've done that during source selections. I look at these seven companies and I'm like, okay, well, these are kind of the same. And, and if I don't see a clear difference between them, I'm going to look at price. And that's unfair. I get that. And price is not the only thing, but that's, if I can't tell the difference, that's what I got to go to. And so what you're talking about is a technical sales. You got to make that technical sale very, very compelling. Say it that way. So that the business sale, which is the contracting officer side, that that's a, you know, it's a, it's part of the package but they both have to work. Okay. Uh, any other areas you use consultants to, to refine what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. If you can get a, a former contracting officer, uh, if you can get their eyes on your proposal, maybe at red team or uh, even when you're solutioning a thing, uh, but th have them tell you what a source selection board would think when they read your proposal. So they'll read the solicitation. They'll read your proposal. If they've been on the source selection board, they'll be able to go. If I read this, I would think this, this is weak. This is a bad idea. You did a really good job here. You should do more of that elsewhere in, in your offer. It's hard to find people that have been on source selection boards that can really kind of tell you how the sausage gets made. Having access to those types of resources will have a dramatic impact on your offer. If you have a good offer, if you have a good solution, that'll get you from a almost one to a clear win, in my opinion. So I'll toot your horn a little bit. Uh, we worked with one of Skyway's former contracting officers who helped us interpret some weird language in, in a solicitation that we were going after. And normally we would have to ask that question to the government through the formal Q&A process, which they will then publish back out to everybody that has an interest in the deal. And so you've tipped your hand, right? You've basically given away some intel or you've shared intel with everybody. But by being able to, to get a seasoned contracting officer to go, oh no, this is what this means. And here's why they're putting that in there. We didn't have to tip our hand and it made our pricing much more competitive because there was just enough ambiguity. And so where other offers priced themselves out because they misinterpreted that, that one little weird piece of verbiage, uh, we got clear guidance that said, no, this is what it means. Here's why they're doing it. Uh, and here's how you should respond. And we won that deal. It was a $65 million deal. Wow. I really appreciate that. And you know what? It makes me smile because that's, that's why I started Skyway in the first place was to help with puzzles just like that. All right, so let's zoom out for a second, talk about the time zones, get the acquisition time zones, like wh where are we in the process? 
and these pieces hit three of them. And the requirement zone, the market research zone, and the RFP zone. All right, let's back up just a second and say, well, okay, well, why is this all matter? I mean, why is this important? Contractors have to play to win. So you've got to do this smartly. One of the rules that uh, Shelly Hall, she said, the way she says it is, is don't play the game if you don't know all the rules. As a CEO, I didn't realize the implication of the PSC code to the degree that you're using it. I mean, I knew people use it. I knew they searched by it. But you're, you're kind of taking it to the next level. There's the order of these, the smart pipeline development, then the discipline capture process, and the smart proposal resource. Can somebody just start with one? Or is it like, if you don't start with the smart pipeline, you're, you're not, don't bother doing the other two? They're all going in tandem, right? Uh, it's, it's not, uh, it's a sequential process, but uh, if you fix pipeline first, and then you start working on capture, and then you start working on proposal, in terms of fixing those processes or making them more competitive, you'll be three years before you get everything tuned up and, and you'll have spent a ton of money to make no progress. So you, you, you really have to do all these in tandem. It's a lot of work, but that, that's why I use consultants, right, to help you. I got a lot of smart people in my organization. We can figure anything out, but when you start taking account the time factor, it's dull to try to figure everything out on your own. It's, it's effective, right? Losing, losing the deal that you spent $250,000 to pursue is a lesson you will not forget, right? That's a great way to learn stuff. It's very inefficient and it's a waste of money. So uh, you have to do all, the, all three of these in tandem, but there's tons of consultants, there's tons of training, there's tons of smart people out there that have been doing this. You know, you need to reach out and network and make those connections and hire the right people. And yeah, you raise a really good point. With all three of those, if you're just making incremental improvement on all three, you're going to move the needle better than trying to do. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. If you chunk them one at a time, you're not going to get very far. So why does the government care about this? Why why is this important on the government side? I remember there was a conversation that there were certain companies that just didn't sell to the government and our customers, because they were familiar with them from their brand or because of going to industry conferences or whatever, they would would go to non-government conferences and see certain companies that, that were really good at things. And they say, well, why don't let's have them do it. Can you sole source a contract to them? I'm like, no, I can't. I got to compete this thing because of, you know, pick a rule. And they wouldn't bid. They weren't interested. And that's an interesting concept to wrap your head around when you think, why would you not want to sell to the government? Understand from the government perspective, if you help them target and you help by having the clarity in the PSC codes, letting them engage throughout the process and, and realizing the impact of not letting them engage, something I probably didn't see as clear. I, I saw a couple of examples uh, on a couple of the programs, actually Paul and I talk about, where the engagement made a big difference. But the lack of engagement, you can't really see that. Anyways, you don't, you don't, they don't call you and say, oh, well, if you'd have told me this, I'd have done that. That does not work. So assume that, that you want to err on the side of more communication. Yeah, and I think contracting officers, if they understood what went on in our head uh, sometimes, and, and many of them do, right, because they've been dealing with us for a while, the better you equip us to kill a deal that is not a good fit, the, the fewer offers you're going to have to go through to, to disqualify, which is costing you time and effort and brain damage and time away from your family. So there's always people that are going to submit offers that they have no chance of winning just because they don't know any better. But, but for those of us that have been in the market for a while, if you equip us to make smarter decisions, you will get fewer proposals that you have to evaluate. The more you equip us to make smarter decisions, the fewer dumb decisions we'll make because we don't want to waste money chasing something we can't win. Right. But sometimes there's this perception that we're, we're just going to put our hat in the ring at all costs. Well, not the smart ones, right? You, you, waste money for, you know, a few deals that you lose handily, 
uh, you want to stop doing that. So you, you say it on a lot of your podcasts. It's all about communication. Yeah. And, and it's a, another thing that pops in my head is if you get twice as many proposals as you expected, it's going to take twice as long to evaluate them, which is why you, know, you go back to that the age old question of why does it take so long to get contracts awarded? That's a big part of the reason. Absolutely. So let's flip to the industry side. What hits you when I say, why does industry care about these three pieces? Uh, so the smart pipeline piece, right? You, you want to be able to cherry pick the best deals that are aligned with where you're going with your business and the types of customers you want to serve, right? From the discipline capture process side, obviously we don't want to chase deals that we don't have a good chance of winning. And we want to make sure that as we go through that entire capture process, we're collecting all the information from all the stakeholders that are going to position us to win. And then the smart proposal resources, there's nothing worse than losing a deal where you spent hundreds of hours, $100,000 or more in proposal effort, and you lost because uh, you got a table wrong. Or <laughs> Many, many years ago, we used the wrong font size in a footer and got our offer tossed out, and we'd spent a lot of money on that deal. And it was dumb. We didn't, we've never made that mistake again, but, but that's, a, um, that's a painful lesson to learn, right? So getting pros into the process early, whether you pay by the drink or you, you, know, you hire them at the appropriate time in the life of your organization, get the pros on board fast. Great, great overall advice. Uh, this, was, this has been really fun. So if somebody wants to learn more about, about Steve and ICS, how do they contact you? Probably the best way to find me is on LinkedIn, Steve Goldsby, G-O-L-D-S-B-Y. There's not many of us out there. I think there's an actor somewhere out in California named Steve Goldsby. And you can find us on our website at www.icsinc.com, I-C-S-I-N-C.com. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast and you have a great day. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks to our guest, Steve Goldsby, and thanks to our sponsor, Skyway Acquisition. If you need help with the three steps discussed in this episode, visit skywaymember.com to learn how Skyway Acquisition can help. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.